It's a five-star podcast. Because we do it. What's What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another week of the What's Real podcast, episode 178. I am your host, Ed Demko, along with my co-host, cohort, co-conspirator, co-contributor, and my co-tag team championship partner in podcasting, the J himself, Jerry Bajoris. What's going on, the J? P-O-M-P'd like always. Hey, uh, nice and pumped up. The swell is on. The Pulsation Nation is in full swing. It's the What's Real podcast with yet another consistent weekly fresh-ass episode. So your boy is vascular. I'm as pumped up, hey, Ed, this week as a go-go ball. I thought uh, you said P-O-M-P, so you said pomp, so I thought you had a pompadour. I wish. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, we got a great show lined up for you guys this week. One of the bigger shows we've had here in a while. Uh, of course, we're going to talk about HBO's Hard Knocks. Uh, me and the Jay are going to complete our NFL preseason preview uh, as we take a look at the AFC this week. Uh, we are going to be previewing WWE's Payback pay-per-view coming up this uh, upcoming weekend, September 2nd. And we are going to review... AEW all out from uh, Wembley Stadium. Uh, so that's a very interesting uh, development. And it is the season finale, so to speak, of Thursday Night Prime as we're going to take a look at the 2014 documentary all about Canon Films, uh, the creators of Canon Films, I should say, uh, and that is the Go-Go Boys. And of course, we're going to be talking some goofs and much, much more. So let's get into it the J. On a very sad note this week in the world of professional wrestling, uh, first up uh, is the passing of Wyndham Rotunda, a.k.a. Bray Wyatt, at the age of 36. Um, we are still getting information in at the time that we're recording the show. Uh, we understand that he had a cardiac issue uh, after uh, contracting COVID. Uh, and there, th- There's developing uh, story there as far as that goes. So obviously we're not going to get super deep into that. Uh, but definitely uh, passing away at age 36 is way, way, way too young uh, and something that I don't think many people saw coming at all. Um, and we've kind of been seeing since then, because uh, this happened just a couple of days ago, uh, a lot of the reaction around the wrestling world with a lot of wrestling shows this past weekend and everything uh, and seeing just the general shock uh you know, that most of the fans have considering this is completely unexpected. Yeah, totally. You know, we were expecting him to come back soon, actually. You know, WWE, there's kind of rumblings that he was um, not too far from a return. And then, you know, you hear this terrible, terrible news because, you know, away from, of course, the celebrity and and the the wrestler is is the man and and the real life person who has a a girlfriend and, and three children three small kids so that's the the really sad part and like you said i mean he he's uh, even decently younger than us as, as we speak at, at 36 uh just way way too young uh, of course uh the main word is a heart condition and covid exasperated that and he seems to have passed away in his sleep when he went to take a nap so uh terrible terrible news uh, i know you know we talk wrestling so much uh i could speak for both of us from talking about bray wyatt that neither of us were the biggest fans of the character. I would probably guess uh, even you so more than me. I, I respected it for the WWE spectacle that it was, you know, basically a parallel to 
what would be the closest to a, a modern undertaker like supernatural type character and they they had a lot of misses with him but they they definitely did some cool things like some different stuff you know there was the the thing at mania when he went against cena that was almost like a sketch in a lot of ways and the lights out yeah, the cinematic match yeah. yeah it was all these creative things and, and and whether they were hits or misses at least with the bray wyatt character they did do some different stuff uh, again it, it wasn't anything that blew me away or that I was that into, but I could see a lot of kids, you know, being into that, you know, my son was a fan just, just from the character and, you know, really cool masks. And, and again, the entrance, the firefly thing and the fiend character, I was never big on because in ring, the matches didn't really translate because he was so character heavy. And, and we went through different eras of the undertaker was a similar thing. But besides yeah. all that, again, it is, it, it is just a sad thing because he was so young uh, such a creative force. Who knows where he could have, you know, developed and evolved the character in the future, uh, which at this point we'll never know. But yeah, it's a very, very uh, big blow to the WWE universe and to the world of professional wrestling. And uh, just to surmise everything here on our format, hey Ed, just personally from the J, definitely a, an RIP to Watundo. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, part of a wrestling family as well. Uh, Mike Rotundo is his father, also known as IRS. Um, so that's another, you know, sad thing there. And obviously, rest in peace uh, to Bray Wyatt. Uh, and, and, you know, it doesn't, it continues on in the world of wrestling families because we also lost an absolute legend. Uh, one of the guys that I feel has one of the few people on the face of the earth that has legitimate claim to being possibly the greatest professional wrestler of all time. Um, somebody that's always been a favorite of ours personally. Uh, but of course, I'm talking about Terry Funk from the famous Funk family. His brother, Dory Funk Jr. and his father, Dory Funk Sr. Um, a guy that had a career that spanned over 50 years, uh, without a doubt. Um, former NWA World Heavyweight Champion when that really meant something. Uh, an absolute legend in Japan uh, as a tag team with his brother Dory Funk. Um, he had runs in Jim Crockett promotions. Uh, obviously, when he returned in 89 uh, to face Flair, they had the I Quit match. Uh, he had a run in WWF in, the, in 1986 with Dory Funk as well. Uh, and then would return in the 1990s uh, as, you know, Chainsaw Charlie and Terry Funk. Uh, and he would have matches with, with Mick Foley. They would win the WWF tag team titles at WrestleMania 14. Um, he is the guy that is solely responsible, in my opinion, for putting ECW on the map. Uh, as he was the biggest name superstar uh, wrestler in the company whenever they first started. Uh, kind of gave the co company credibility. Um, he reinvented himself numerous times. He would go back to WCW, of course, before they closed their doors. He's a WWF Hall of Famer, a Wrestling Observer Hall of Famer. Um, you know, a guy that's pretty much wrestled absolutely everywhere. Uh, he has a famous, uh, the famous uh, empty arena match against uh, Jerry Lawler uh, in the Memphis Territory from 1981. Um, like I said, his whole run in all Japan is considered legendary, and he would wrestle there from 1972 throughout 1991. Um, 
you know, just a massive, massive career. Like you're not going to find anybody that has as many, uh, you know, accolades as him. He's also one of the people that are, uh, you know, not because you can't really pinpoint it, but one of the handful of guys in wrestling history that's also responsible for what what is considered hardcore wrestling. Um, he would go to Japan and wrestle in death matches in the early 90s uh, when that stuff was kind of like getting some traction or getting its own identity. Um, and he would bring that to the United States. Of course, the Born to be Wired uh, barbed wire match that he had with Sabu is one of the most violent, legendary matches of its type ever in any company. Um you know, I don't know really what else to say, man. I mean, we've seen Funk wrestle for FMW, uh, All Japan, uh, WWF, WWE, uh, WCW, Jim Crockett Promotions in the NWA, uh, TNA. He showed up in at one point. Um, you know, absolutely everywhere and anywhere you could possibly think, uh, Terry Funk stamped his name, uh, you know, in that company at some point in time. Five decades, hey, uh, just says it all. That, that was a great rundown. And through everything you said, Terry Funk would still pop up in all different places in our lives of being fans. From being on, you know, we talked about the WCW versus the World video game. Yep. It was one of our personal classics, and they didn't have the rights to names, but they all had these homemade guys that were all based on real guys that us wrestling nerds all knew. And of course there was the Terry Funk character because it had the very unique Terry Funk striped pants, you know, with the, mm -hmm. the, the kind of trunks over the stripes, you know, so we knew that was Terry Funk. And then of course he popped up in another personal thing of ours. When we went up to the Monroeville mall as teenagers to shop, in Suncoast video, I believe it was. Oh yeah, we found Stranglemania from the I. Were they the Insane Clown Posse, the ICP, yep. which and, had and that, the uh, IWA Japan Deathmatch stuff, the Deathmatch tournament, like the first time when we were in high school and watching that, and then he would pop up, of course, in in Roadhouse, and he was great in, in Roadhouse with Patrick Swayze, and, and, and not to mention uh, Paradise Alley, Paradise with, uh, Alley, Sylvester Stallone. And then, of course, he was one of the main uh, protagonists and somebody that they followed in the documentary that we all loved growing up, Beyond the Mat, which we saw yep. in the movie theater more than once. And, you know, there's, you know, you could go on and on. And, and we're giving him the, the brief shout out here at the beginning of our episode, but we could do a whole freaking segment on Terry Funk. And maybe someday we'll, we'll get that opportunity. Uh, you know, it's kind of off this week just with everything we have going on, but. His career is so expansive, and we're such huge fans Dude, of him. You know, we could definitely uh, do that one day. Let me, let me. This is going to be annoying, but it's it. And I don't do this for many people, but I'll do it for Terry Funk. Listen to some of his accomplishments here. This is just an all Japan wrestling here to start. Uh, the World Tag League, uh, World Strongest Tag Determination League in 77, 79, 82 with Dory Funk. Uh, he won the Champions Carnival Distinguished Service Award in 1980. The World's Strongest Tag Determination League Technical Award in 1977. Uh, Cauliflower Alley Club, Club, he got the Iron Mike Mizuraki Award in 2005. Uh, in Championship Wrestling from Florida, he was the NWA Florida Heavyweight Champion. Uh, he won the NWA Florida Tag Championships twice with Dory Funk. He was the NWA Florida Television Champion. 
the NWA North American Tag Team Champions with Dory, NWA Southern Heavyweight Championship two times, the NWA Florida Heavyweight Championship tournament winner. Uh, Andy won the NWA Florida Heavyweight Championship tournament in 1979. He's a former two-time ECW World Heavyweight Champion and a one-time ECW Television Champion. Uh, he's in the George Tragos Luthez Professional Wrestling Hall of Fame, Class of 2010. He's a former NWA Georgia Tag Champion with Dory, an NWA Georgia TV Champion, NWA Georgia Tag Team Champion uh, tournament that he won in 1978 with Dory. Uh, he's in the International Profes- Professional Wrestling Hall of Fame. Uh, he wrestled. He was a former two-time NWA WCW United States Heavyweight Champion. Uh, two, three-time hardcore champion of WCW, the 1995 class of the WCW Hall of Fame, the NWA United, Stamp- United States Championship Tournament winner in 1975. Uh, he's in the NWA Hall of Fame class of 2009, obviously former NWA World Heavyweight Champion. Um, he is, let's see, Pro Wrestling Illustrated. He was in the feud of the year in 1989 against Ric Flair. 1997 was voted Most Inspirational Wrestler of the Year. He won the Stanley Weston Award in 2021. He was the PWI Wrestler of the Year in 1976. Uh, Let's see. Pro Wrestling uh, Hall of Fame and Museum, Class of 2004. Um, He is in the St. Louis Wrestling Hall of Fame, Class of 2010. Uh, Stampede Wrestling Hall of Fame, Class of 1995. He won the 1983 Tokyo Sports Lifetime Achievement Award. Uh, And he also won the match of the year uh, with Dory Funk against Giant Baba and Jumbo Saruta in 1980. He won the Popularity Award in 1979. He's a former USWA Unified World Heavyweight Champion. uh, And two-time NWA uh, Brass Knuckles Champion. Uh, NWA Tag Team Champion two times with Dory Funk. NWA Western States Heavyweight Champion 12 times. NWA Western States Tag Champion three times with Ricky Romero. And uh, two times with the Lawman. Also a former WWF Tag Team Champion with Cactus Jack. 2009 WWE Hall of Fame uh, inductee. And in the Wrestling Observer, he won Best Brawler in 89, Best Heel in 89, Best on Interviews in 89, Hardest Worker in 1989, Feud of the Year in 1989 against Ric Flair, and was inducted into the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame in 1996. So one of the most accomplished professional wrestlers of all time uh, and one of our all-time favorites. So obviously, from us here at the What's Real Podcast, rest in peace. To Terry Funk, thank you so much for the memories and the matches. And, and and you can't bring up Terry Funk without bringing up the fact, as we were saying about Bray Wyatt as well, the man behind the professional wrestler. He's one of those guys that nobody had a bad thing to say about Terry. Never. Funk. He gave back to the business more than maybe anyone. Uh, he was good to the young guys coming into the business, that sort of thing. You hear that all the time. Uh, just to wrap up the, the Terry Funk talk, because, again, we can maybe look back at, at Terry's career at, at another time here on the podcast. Uh, but I had some just some funny things and kind of strange things that I found out when we brought up some references in like Wikipedia. Yep. And WCW at the end, in like 2000, 2001, 
It was oh, yeah. pretty much when I stopped watching it. So I didn't remember a lot of shit. And Terry Funk was the WCW commissioner mm-hmm. in, in the first week of January, which I never realized. And was yep. also the leader of the short-lived old age outlaws with Arn Anderson, Zabisco, and Orndorff that feuded yeah. with the NWO, which I didn't remember that. Uh, you know, he also made Dude. appearances in TNA, of course. You know what I remember pretty vividly during the dying days, and it was something that I just kind of enjoyed at the time because I was a fan of both of them. But when Terry Funk was the WCW Hardcore Champion, he was feuding with Chris Candido because uh, they were doing like a lot of like really goofy shit, like matches in like horse pens and fucking like just weird shit. Uh, and it, not like the wrestling was great, but it was entertaining because they were both such goofs. So, and obviously Funk is great at shit like that. So that's always something that kind of stuck out at the, uh, you know, even in the dying days of WCW with the mess that that company was in, Funk was still doing really entertaining stuff. Yeah, he was so, so goddamn entertaining. And and just one of the other funny things that I kind of got out of this was looking at some of his acting roles. Yep. He was in uh, the pilot episode of The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr. with Bruce Campbell, oh, yeah. which I was a yep. big fan of. He was a defendant, you know, obviously, presumably because I don't remember it in a uh, court scene. He was in an episode of Quantum Leap. Yeah, I remember a, that. Yeah, Carl Shiloh. And then this one was funny. He was in an episode of Thunder in Paradise, Hogan oh, Show. Yeah. Yep. And, and his character name, because you, you'll get a kick out of this because we love just goofy names. And of course, the Funker. In Thunder in Paradise, he was a character named Amarillo Dokes, of course. <laughs> so we always talk about our fake aliases. So add Amarillo Dokes to the list, but you know, and definitely, dude, you know, we're, we're we have big smiles on our face at such a sad time because that's what Terry Funk did. He entertained us, and is it goes back to our youth all the way to us being adults. I'm a father myself, so. Uh, again, what, what more can you say than, than the breakdown we just had, Hey Ed, and again, reiterated a five decade plus career. Something interesting that I thought about uh, to kind of tie it in with me and you here on the show. Uh, there's only two times in my life that I ever remember seeing Terry Funk wrestle um, or live like in person. Uh, and one of them was an ECW match uh, from the very first ECW show that we ever went to at Valley High School. Yeah, uh, where he wrestled Brian Lee, and the other time was when he I, he might have wrestled on the show. I don't even remember, but uh, him at the Hell in a Cell, uh, where Foley got thrown off the top, w- which we were both at both of those shows together. Yeah. and I don't believe I've saw Terry Funk wrestle at anything else uh, ever again. No, because he wasn't on the card at the November to remember we went to right when we saw. No, him. I think Shane Douglas won the belt. Yeah, uh, no, he was not on that so show. He wasn't on that show. And if there was any other show that we would have seen him at, like an IWC show or something like that, like we were both at it. So I just can't remember off the top of my head, but I don't believe so. I think his, the King of the Ring was probably the last time. His involvement in the Hell in a Cell that you referenced too was great because it was all yeah. impromptu, and they like yep. somebody whispered like Terry, you know, kill some time. So he like gets choke slammed by the Undertaker that was unplanned mm-hmm. and stuff. So he, he was and his Funk. shoe fell off. Remember, it's like yeah. only Terry Funk. He's in his sock in the Hell in a Cell. So he he was just such a such an entertaining wrestler. He's one of my favorites of all time, and and. and is a great person, which, you know, is icing on the cake. 
absolutely one of the greatest to ever do it. So rest in peace, obviously, to Terry Funk and again to Bray Wyatt from from us here on the program. Uh, One more thing here before we go into our first commercial break. Uh, It's way after the fact by the time you guys are listening to this, but we're going to break it down anyway. The final week of uh, Steelers football in the preseason uh, was a 24-0 blowout of the Atlanta Falcons where the Atlanta Falcons played mainly backups in the game and the Steelers played starters. And, uh, you know, it wasn't anything mind-blowing per se, uh, again, we saw another solid outing from Kenny Pickett. He was 4-4 four, four for 86 yards. Uh, Mitchell Trubisky got a lot of the work in the game. He went for 7-9 for 54 yards. Uh, Anthony McFarland had the most rushing uh, action, I guess you would say, 10 attempts for 55 yards and a touchdown. Uh, we also saw George Pickens had a 35-yard catch. Uh, Deontay Johnson had a 33-yard catch. Uh, Connor Hayward had two for 27 uh, you know, saw more starters play in this game than than we probably had uh, seen previously. We saw T.J. Watt get a pretty commanding sack and was promptly taken out of the game. Uh, but uh, nothing amazing, but like just another solid entry to what looks like a really, really good preseason for the Steelers. And again, Kenny Pickett, again, has looked very, very good uh, early on here. Yeah, it's we're really, really pumped for the – the regular season to start with the preseason, the way everything's going. We want to see how that translates into regular season football. So uh, this this was just another really good preseason outing. But as we know, preseason is meaningless. So, uh, But that doesn't deter the fact that this is a, a good sign um, coming from last year and some kind of hit or miss years, and, and especially last year not making the playoffs for the first time in some time. But it was funny because Mike Tomlin didn't waver in his decision to play Kenny Pickett and other starters. And Atlanta coach Arthur Smith uh, countered with backups. And this would eventually lead uh, in the press to another Tomlinism, which he has so many of them, where he said, oh, I, yeah. just, I just think it's difficult to box without sparring. So add that to yep. a list. But that's kind of how he was looking at things. But yeah, you broke it down. Hey, Ed, and as you said, it's kind of outdated as, as we talk. But, you know, we want to keep our consistency on the What's Real podcast going and, and bring up our thoughts on this game. But yeah, I mean, they just overpowered the Falcons 24 nothing. So what what more can you say? They're they're looking good in the preseason, and we're hoping this translates into the regular season here. Absolutely. So we're going to take our very first commercial break, and whenever we come back, the football talk just keeps going uh, as we take a look at Episode 3 of HBO's Hard Knocks, all about the New York Jets. So stay tuned. We'll be back with that and much more right after this, right here on the What's Real Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Herman James with the Bush Room Podcast. Finally giving me something to do here. It's been a while since I talked to you guys, but I'm actually helping them out doing an advertisement for advertisers. That's right. If you would like to advertise here on the What's Real Podcast and join a team, just shoot us an email today. We got cheap, easy, and affordable rates, and we could hook you up with some kick-ass advertisements. Just hit us up at Gmail. It's at what's real pod at gmail.com. That's what's real pod at gmail.com. Join the team with me, my brother Timmons and James, the wizard behind the boards, Cam, the J, and Hey Ed. It's the What's Real team for some advertisers. Hit us up, whatsrealpod at gmail.com today. And we're back, and it is time to get into the third episode of HBO's Hard Knocks on the New York Jets. Uh, This week, we saw the rookie show Redemption a couple weeks ago 
uh, they they always do like a rookie hazing thing where like they have to perform in front of the team, and it's basically just for your teammates to bust your balls and embarrass you in front of everybody. Uh, and it was so weird and bad that they were like, no, fuck that. You guys got to do this again, but you got to do it right this time. So we're seeing that this week. Uh, Jeremy Cap stole the show. Uh, he rapped. Uh, Eminem. He did, yeah, he did some Eminem, Lose Yourself. Uh, at the th- And that was, you know, fine or whatever. And then they did uh, some guys did a scene from Stomp the Yard. Uh you know, and it's kind of like whatever. They do like kind of a gong show type thing. Uh, and they did a Battle of the Bands thing that was kind of like karaoke. Uh, Zach Kuntz sang Keisha Cole's Love. Um, there was also some offensive linemen came out singing I Want It That Way from the Backstreet Boys. Uh, you know, that kind of thing. But it's this is the kind of like horse shit basically that like the show's kind of like famous for and at this point i'm wondering how much of this is just like remember how we were talking about how there's the access has been cut off a lot for the yeah, jets they this year so it's like they're i feel like they're doing shit like this and like the mentalist that they did just for hbo cameras yeah and it's funny too because it seems like, you know, here we're, we're going through episode three again, a bit behind for, for when we talk about it and all that. But it, it's a point that, that goes into where we're at in, in the season of Hard Knocks, where it turned into the life and times of Aaron Rodgers in yep. a lot of ways, which isn't bad because we're not both of us. We've talked about it. We're not the biggest Aaron Rodgers fans, but it's still Aaron Rodgers. You know, it's still a Hall of Fame quarterback. And it is the- it's the story, like it's the story. It. It's it's all that stuff. So as it, it's kind of like my point to bringing it up, Hayat, is it's kind of like a counterweight to the access issue. It's like at yep. least they have Aaron Rodgers, and they're really focusing on him a lot because it, it makes it more interesting than say if they had just Zach Wilson there still or something. Yeah. Yep. No, I totally agree with that. And we got this is probably the most interesting thing that happened on this week's episode. So they get into a lot of the stuff with Randall Cobb and his family and off the field and, you know, his decision to come here instead of retiring, which is something that he thought about doing. Uh, But they also show where Cobb is in like a huddle with the receivers and he's basically telling them how Aaron Rodgers is. And he's like, look, if if you're dropping passes or you're fucking up your routes and shit, he's just not going to throw you the ball. Like, he's just going to move on from you and throw it to someone else, uh, which it's weird, man. Like, I don't know how this felt to you, but, like, to me, this, like, Rodgers is trying to, like, get his point across without bitching out his teammates. And this is how he, like, have Cobb tell him about it, you know, like that kind of a thing. Right. So he doesn't come across like a dickhead to his teammates, but at the same time, he also wants them to know, like, if you fuck up, then we're not going to fuck with you at all. Like, I'm not going to – you're barely going to play. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's, that, that was a cool insight. And it's going to be interesting to see how Cobb does, just speaking of that this year, uh, on a year he was considering potential retirement and wanting to play one more with Aaron Rodgers here in New York. Uh, some of the other little stuff that I had notes-wise was uh, them talking about Zach Wilson's head tie. You know, he always has the headbands on. 
And yep. Like they, they talk about how extremely obnoxious, but highly practical they are. So that, that was a little note. Uh, Robert Sala, the head coach's quote unquote, four types of per- person speech. Yeah. You know, um, we were privy to a speech that proves why the man has a head coaching gig to begin with, uh, basically saying every team does have that person who is just scraping by the one motivated by money and the Mamba mentality folks. And Salah should have started the season with this one instead of the Crows and the Eagles ramble because this was a good yeah. one. And yep. um, the other note I had, hey, that kind of stood out was Quentin Williams because uh, he stood up for himself as far as body shaming goes because I guess Mike Evans had said something jabbing at his weight and he yep. respectfully just confronted him about it and they showed that footage. So <laughs> that, that made me a fan of Quentin Williams. That was cool for him just to uh, you know be a man and – you know, step up to him and, and just say how he felt without it being like a fight or, or something along those lines. You know, that was something that stood out. Well, and it's too, it's something that should be mentioned here. And I know the show is completely focused on Aaron Rodgers because he's the biggest, you know, big name type player that to, can't, to go there. But dude, Quentin Williams is their best player. Yeah. Like by far. Like their D tackle, he's a monster. He's fucking almost unblockable. Uh, he's going to be a major fucking player this season in the NFL. He's going to be a big reason why this team's any good at all. Um, but yeah, no doubt. Like, I'm glad they're giving him a little bit of shine on here because he's their best fucking player. So he should be spotlight definitely on here. You know what's funny as well? We were talking last week, breaking down Hard Knocks episode two. And one of the things we were talking about as the series continued was that this was the week that could possibly be more interesting with Dalvin cook coming in. And of course he's, he's coming in reporting to camp and then his wife goes immediately into labor. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, of course you can't so can write it. It's, out there. Yeah. It's like a, a, a typical episodic series. They, they'd write in some, some twists like to kind of prolong you seeing him, you know, this is real life. And, and it's still like, damn, we're not seeing any Dalvin cook until maybe episode four and beyond. So we'll, we'll see how that goes is, the, the new uh, Hard Knocks comes out after we, we wrap our recording, so we'll cover that next week. But I thought that was funny, too. It's like, of course. And we get back to something that Hard Knocks is known for, which I was kind of happy about because we haven't seen much of it uh, out of the first two episodes. Uh, but they highlight uh, defensive tackle Tanzel Smart and rookie running back Israel Abaconda uh, in this one. And I was happy about that because Izzy's former pit running back, so – I'm actually kind of excited to see what what happens with him. And, of course, these are the guys that are generally fighting for a roster spot. Uh, I think Izzy Abaconda would have probably made the team easily. Uh, but since they got ended up getting Dalvin Cook on top of having Brees Hall and everything, like, you know, the, the running back room's a lot smaller. Uh, so who knows if he's going to make the team or not. But I definitely think the dude's going to make it on a team uh, regardless. But... This is it, it was cool to see this stuff because this again is kind of what Hard Knocks made its name off of, like spotlighting the younger players, and, you know, like maybe the the grizzled veterans that aren't necessarily sure of a roster spot. Yep, yeah, good call there. They they had footage of the joint practice of the Jets and Bucks, and there was a lot of fights uh, that they yep. captured in that. A lot of scuffles, full brawls. Uh, part of Hard Knocks, you know, always worth mentioning. And dude. They they kind of pissed me off on this one because there was a news story surrounding some of this stuff the week before where uh, the Jets decided not to participate in the second day of uh, joint practices. 
And to me, they completely glossed over it. Like I thought this was, they were really going to get into detail here and kind of explain everything that happened. Cause you know, that's obviously what hard knocks is there for, but they didn't really do that. And I was like, wow, that felt like a missed opportunity. Number one. And number two, it leads back into what we were talking about where they're just not giving uh, HBO the access that they've previously been given when it comes to hard knocks. And that's disappointing. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, Another another uh, worth mentioning aspect of this episode was getting a bit of footage of Garrett Wilson kind of working with Rogers more because yeah. of course you know that's that's going to be a big combination hopefully uh, as the reference article I have pulled up states we could see just a sense of fantasy football players everywhere salivating and there's a mention of Wilson being what Devonte Adams was for Rodgers but as they say let's pump the brakes there so yeah, before any comparison definitely. is made you know we could keep talking here it's preseason we got to see how the regular season chemistry is but nonetheless uh, that could be a hell of a you know tandem absolutely especially if they pan out from you know what ma- people mainly expect out of them um but Okay, so we've kind of reached this. This is definitely like the midpoint of the season here in Hard Knocks. And again, this wasn't a bad episode by any stretch of the means, but I'm also starting to feel it wearing a little bit on me uh, where it just feels like we're just watching nonsense uh, every week on here. And uh, I'm going to obviously finish the season out, but you know, as the actual regular season approaches rapidly here, I'm just finding myself less and less interested in this as it goes along. And there's not really anything on the show itself that's like, you know, piquing my interest. I agree with that. But it's it's like you said, we were talking a little bit uh, off off the podcast uh, about this year's Hard Knocks and Hard Knocks in general. And we both mentioned, though, at the end of the day, because I agree with that statement you just made. But at the end of the day, it is a, a, still a breezy watch for me. I mean, it goes fast. Yeah, same. It's easy to throw on and, and watch. Uh, you know, so that that's kind of a positive point towards it. The only other thing I had to mention, uh, of course, hey Ed, and we've we've covered Cobra Kai on the podcast, but the original Karate Kid, Ralph Macchio, oh, yeah. actually closed out the episode. I forgot about talking that. to yeah. the team. Yeah, and he offered up wisdom from an old sensei of his to succeed in life in all aspects. You need to find balance as the great. Uh, Pat Morita as Sensei Miyagi, Mr. Miyagi says. So uh, I thought that was pretty funny too. But yeah, like like you said, I, I agree with you. It's nothing that's groundbreaking here. Uh, I keep comparing it to the other docuseries on Netflix with quarterback coming out and they're just two kind of different concepts and it kind of shows you where Hard Knocks is as far as the concept being one team, one preseason. But at the end of the day, it's still a tradition for us and it's still a pretty easy watch. Absolutely. So uh, join us next week on the show where we're going to take a look at episode four of of Hard Knocks, all about the Jets. Uh, But we are up against another commercial break. But the football talk does not stop as it is time for me and the Jay to give you guys our AFC season preview. So we're going to have that and much more. So stay tuned. We'll be back right after this right here on the What's Real podcast. Join us next week for episode 179 of the What's Real podcast. The NFL season is underway as we take a look at the brand new episode of HBO's Hard Knocks on the New York Jets. It is also time for our preseason NFL power rankings and our predictions for week one of the NFL. And it's a humongous review of WWE from our hometown of the steel city of Pittsburgh. It's payback 2023. 
Games with the Whistle Roll Podcast, representing Goose or Goose. And I promise I'm doing my job because I don't want to lose it to my brother Herman, representing one of the funniest segments in weekly podcasting. The guys get crazy, talking about wrestle ball, rusting Caucasians jumping in the oil pits, mugs blowing out their knees, Skynet hitting bass with tennis rackets, and Cheddar Man. Goose or Goose. All that and much more next week on episode 179 of the What's Real Podcast. And we're back and it is time for our AFC season preview. We did the NFC last week. We went division by division. Let's do that again, of course, and we're going to have our uh, the team that we pick uh, most likely to go to the Super Bowl and, of course, a dark horse, which we did last week, too. Uh, first, we'll start in the AFC South. This is the uh, division, the J, of the Jacksonville Jaguars, the Tennessee Titans, the Houston Texans, and the Indianapolis Colts. Uh, to me, this is basically a one-team race unless there's some injuries and stuff that come into play. Uh, Jacksonville Jaguars should be on top of this division, no problem. Uh, maybe, maybe an outside shot by the Titans. Uh, I don't think Houston or Indianapolis stands a chance at all, though. Nah, it's shit. Life is timing. Hey, you know, we promote that all the time. And the Jacksonville Jaguars picked the right time to come into their own because the rest of their division, as you're saying, is definitely in regression and building stages in varying situations that I definitely see Jacksonville as being the strongest contender for the division crown. I mean, you got Trevor Lawrence, who is uh, ascending as we speak as a quarterback, you know, leading a promising offense. Uh, you know, you have the Texans that are completely re- rebuilding with uh, rookie quarterback C.J. Stroud. Um, you know, going through predictable growing pains and things like that. You have the situation in Indianapolis with the nonstop drama with Jonathan Taylor and how he's seeking a trade. Um, you know, the Titans are, are kind of in a, a rebuilding situation. You know, Derrick Henry isn't getting any younger. And there, I, I like Mike Vrabel as a coach uh, in uh, t- Tennessee. He's pretty good, but yep. I, don't, I don't think they have a strong enough support system right now to do any, you know, real damage to Jacksonville winning the division crown this year yeah the only way that's going to happen at all is injuries uh, yep and you know that's Unusual a big disclaimer. If. so yeah. uh now we move over to the afc west of course this is the uh division with the kansas city chiefs the los angeles chargers the las vegas raiders and the denver broncos uh again to me this is a pretty much a one team uh division i see kansas city being on top here again uh, the Chargers obviously have a chance. I just put my, you know, the betting money goes on the, the Chiefs at this point. Uh, the Raiders, to me, I don't really think they're going to be very dangerous this year. Uh, and even in a best-case scenario, I don't see Denver being very dangerous either. Uh, you know, you do have some good players in this division. Some different things can happen. Uh, and obviously, again, with injuries, anything can happen. But, uh, but yeah, where we sit right now, it's it's pretty much Kansas City or nothing with a very small outside chance of, of the Chargers uh, possibly doing it. But the uh, the Chargers look to be primed and ready for, for a wild card spot for sure. It's funny with the AFC West, hey, Ed, if, if you remember, 
they were considered this was considered the best division in football this time last, last year. year then the yeah. game started <laughs> so you have yeah. the, the yep. dumpster fire that became nathaniel hackett and russell, russell wilson in denver uh the raiders imploded as usual and the chargers got hit with the the injury bug i mean all sorts of debilitating injuries and then you got the the dominating chiefs uh, like you yeah say. the team that won the super bowl and, and it's it's very similar to how we put it in last week's preview of the nfc we were saying how the Eagles, uh, that was like our top pick, and it was their conference to lose in division. And I think that's the same way to put it for the Chiefs. You know, it's it's theirs to lose it's, if they fuck something up, as you keep alluding to with injuries. I don't see that happening. I still see the Chiefs dominating and winning this division. It's another thing bringing it up while we're at it talking about the dumpster fire with Nathaniel Hackett and Russell Wilson in Denver is Sean Payton coming in. And that's going to really show the true impact of a head coach because he's a winning head coach, possible Hall of Fame coach coming in. So we'll mm -hmm. see what he can do there. So that will be interesting. But other than that, breaking it down, I don't see anybody dethroning the Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl reigning champions. Now we move over to the AFC East. This is one of the more interesting ones, uh, I think, in the entire league. Uh, this is the division of the Buffalo Bills, the New York Jets, the Miami Dolphins, and the New England Patriots. Uh, this one, to me, is probably the most wide open uh, because, to, to me, New England's not – they're not going to be bad, but they're not serious contenders to me in this division at all. Uh, you have the Jets with Aaron Rodgers. Obviously, the Buffalo Bills have been the team of this division for the last few seasons. And then you have the Miami Dolphins as well. Uh, a team, it's like a mixed bag type team. Like they could be really good or they might not be a factor at all. Uh, the same thing I think could be said for the Jets as well. Uh, they're most likely going to be good, but they might not, you know. But, and I even said last week here on the show that I feel like Buffalo is a team that might uh, kind of take a couple steps back this season. So uh, this one's a lot harder to call, uh, in my opinion, than, than at least it's been in the last few years. Uh, and it's nice to see that there's division here, you know, where there's so many teams that are really going to stand a chance this year. This is going to be very, very tightly contested, the AFC East. And one thing that we we brought up and we got a kind of inside look, another positive, throw another positive to Hard Knocks, uh, seeing the Jets, is their heavily scrutinized offensive line. Yep. And as you mentioned last week, hey, Ed, as Pittsburgh Steelers fans, we know how important that is. It's not the glamorous yeah, position kind of thing, but, you know, you're, you're blocking for Aaron Rodgers. And if he's not going to have consistent blocking and, and be able to play like he needs to, that's going to throw off that entire team. You know, then you Game's have the Dolphins. one of the trenches, the Jay. Exactly. You have the Dolphins facing their own concerns, keeping Tua healthy and star cornerback Jalen Ramsey is sidelined with a surgically repaired knee. And of course, you have the. You know, arguably the greatest coach in NFL history, Bill Belichick, still leading the weakest team in the division, but a lot of young guys there. So it's going to be very interesting to see what Belichick can do this year with the Patriots. I mean, it seems like just what you know, talk about coaching, just having Belichick around still gives them a chance. So I'm with you. This is a wide open division. Uh, the Buffalo Bills have a lot of questions to answer. Are they still a serious championship contender? Or are the skeptics crowing about their best window to win a title is closing? Is that going to ring true? You know, these are all questions that will be answered this year, but it's not going to change the fact that, as you mentioned, this is going to be very highly competitive, this division. And uh, with our preview here going into the season, it's very tough to say who can come out on top here. 
Yeah, it's it's really, you know, like I have a few scenarios here. Like like I said, I could see Buffalo regressing. Uh, I could see the Jets not living up to the hype. And I could see Miami kind of surprising people because maybe Tua does stay healthy. Right. And then, yeah, you know, they got some weapons. It, yeah, absolutely. They have a shit ton of weapons on that team. Right. So uh, obviously, I think the Bills are the, the odds on favorite to win if you just want to go with the safe choice here. But again, man, I think there's three teams in this division that can legitimately contend. I mean, that, you, you just summed it up for me. If if I'm picking who's winning the division, I'm I would put my money on the Dolphins right now. Yeah, the Dolphins would be a good bet here. I mean, I think it's, you know, I, to me, put it this way. I think there's a good chance that Buffalo's good again. I think there's a good chance that Tua does stay healthy and Miami's really good. And I think those chances are both better than assuming that Aaron Rodgers is going to make that much of a difference and the Jets are just going to be world beaters now. And their line just is a yeah. yeah. I, I Ex- Yep. Ex- so, like, I would, you know... I'd probably put my money on Buffalo first, then Miami, and then the Jets. If I'm, you know, picking a winner, that's the order that I would go in right now. And it's in the in Buffalo and, and Miami are, I think, a lot closer than than you know what people think. And then, of course, as I was alluding to, out of nowhere, the Patriots are good again. Yeah, what's what's they'll, they'll they'll be the team, yeah. and the other teams will stink or something. So. Uh, but yeah, that's it's going to be an interesting division for sure. And of course, the best for last, possibly the best division in the National Football League this year. Of course, I'm talking about the AFC North. That is the division of the Kings of the North, the Pittsburgh Steelers, the Cleveland Browns, the Baltimore Ravens, and the Cincinnati Bengals. Um, this one, I think we've talked about kind of already roundabout with our Steelers talk. Um, it's probably Cincinnati's division to lose. Uh, which could be the case this year, especially if uh, Joe Burrow's calf injury is worse than we've been told up to this point, which is possible. Um, I think the Steelers actually have the second best chance to win this division this year uh, or be the second place team, uh, very much so. I don't uh, understand why everybody is so bought into Baltimore. I don't think Baltimore's been that special in a few years, probably since the year that uh, Lamar won the MVP. Um and the Browns, I, I'll believe it when I see it with them. I don't care who's on their team, what's going on with their team, with their coaches, what their schedule looks like, what they look like in the preseason, what we've heard in rumors and you know other shit. I don't care. Till I see it on the, the field from the Browns, I won't believe it. But uh, Cincinnati's most likely going to be the winner here. But I think that uh, the Steelers can actually make a really, really strong push for it this year as well. I hope so. You know, again, another very highly competitive division, and it's definitely going to be the same this year as every team truly does have a, a solid shot to reach postseason play. Uh, like you're breaking down from many of the things that I've been reading in preparation for, for our talk and everything. Hey, Ed, I still see most people that talk NFL choosing between Baltimore and Cincinnati. That's still going on. I think a lot of the talk from very early on in the season where people saw the war squad on paper being the Steelers and a lot of people in the spring picking the Steelers to come in last in the division after the postseason buzz or I'm sorry, preseason buzz. That's really starting to change people's thoughts. It is as you said. And and, and like we broke down with our brief talk on the last preseason game, the Steelers had against Atlanta. If that momentum and the way they're playing translates into the regular season, 
I'm with you. I, I really think that they they can be the first or second place team in the division because the Ravens, to me, are still a big question mark. And, and Lamar Jackson, is he able to take the the passing game in, in Baltimore to a, another level with a suspect receiving core? And things yeah. like that. So, you yep. know, and, and, and of course, everybody's talking about Burrow's injury since early uh, in training camp. Uh, you know, this lingering calf injury, calf strain. Is that is he going to miss regular season play? That's still yet to be seen to be believed. I did hear talk that he was going to miss a game or two, but I guess that's not the case. Uh, none of that's set in stone. So uh, that's another big thing. But to, to break it down, yeah, I think this is going to be a highly contested division. I'm with you as far as breaking down the Browns. I'll believe it when I see it. They're coming off two straight losing seasons. They made the playoffs for the first time in some time in 2020, and they do still have a lot of talent. And, and this is going to be the Sean Watson's first full season. So uh, a, lot of, a lot of question marks, a lot of interesting factors here. But again, I think it's going to be tight, but I do think the Steelers have a chance. So a lot of question marks hey, in the preview here. It's going to be a really inter- interesting division to watch this year. All right, the Jays. So let's get down to it. Who is your favorite uh, to be uh, the Super Bowl champions this year from the AFC? Again, hey, Ed, uh, you know, great minds and, and all the terminology we use here on the What's Real podcast. There isn't much of a better way for me to put it than we did last week with uh, the NFC and saying the Eagles, it's their conference to lose. I believe that's the same case to the, the defending Super Bowl champions. Uh, I think it's their conference to lose. Uh, they haven't changed too much. They still have Andy Reid, Mahomes in his prime, Kelsey, the the whole group. So uh, I still believe that the Chiefs uh, are the favorites for, for the Super Bowl repeat this year. Yeah, I would agree with you there. Um, I also think that it's very possible that they don't win the Super Bowl, uh, that somebody else emerges. Um, but I'm just not willing going into the season to say anybody else is the favorite uh, like I am the Chiefs. So until I see something differently, uh, yeah, I would I would totally agree with you there as far as Kansas City goes. So uh, and now onto our dark horse picks here. This could be very interesting, the Jay. And uh, it is the dark horse here. So uh, I don't want to hear any, you know, Buffalo like that's nah, not what the dark horse is. Uh, so my choice for the dark horse here is might have a few people rolling eyes, but it is what it is. My dark horse choice is the Pittsburgh Steelers. Yeah, it's a good dark horse. Uh, I'll go with the Jacksonville Jaguars. I think they okay. could be a, a dark horse this year as as they define themselves last year, making the playoffs and looking strong towards the end of the season. So uh, that would be my pick. Absolutely. So that is our breakdown of the AFC. Uh, so I hope you guys enjoyed that. So uh, it's time for some major show notes announcements. So next week on the show, guys, me and the Jay are going to be giving you our very first, uh, you know, before the season begins, power rankings. Uh, so that's be- really, really kicking off the NFL season. That'll be next week on episode 179. We will have our going into the season uh, power rankings set up for the first time. Uh, for this NFL season. So I'm definitely looking forward to that. That's one of both of our uh, favorite things that we do here on the show. Uh, So you can expect that next week as well. So uh, we are up against another commercial break. Whenever we come back, it is time to talk wrestling because we are going to review the AEW All Out pay-per-view from this past weekend from Wembley Stadium. Or I'm sorry, All In uh, from this past weekend at Wembley Stadium. And of course, we are going to preview the WWE Payback pay-per-view 
from Pittsburgh, by the way, and neither one of us are going. So we'll talk about that and much more. Stay tuned. We'll be back right after this right here on the What's Real Podcast. Hey, Yins, guys. That's right. It's your boy, the J, once again. As the great Chris Jericho used to say, representing the Dubar question mark, the What's Real podcast. And I am here today for local Pittsburgh area independent production company, Churchill Pictures. And the Jay can admit, for those consistently listening week to week, we have ads for Churchill Pictures. You may be rolling your eyes, but this time, this week, I have a gift for you where you can watch some of our feature films for free for the first time. For those that don't know, Churchill Pictures is based out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, established from the bond of two childhood friends. Churchill Pictures envisions creating visual content that is completely original, thought-provoking, and most importantly, entertaining. Check all the information out at churchillpictures.com today. And as I said at the top of the ad, your chance to see their two feature films for free. Just subscribe to YouTube's Churchill Pictures channel. Go to YouTube. Subscribe to the Churchill Pictures channel and you'll be able to watch the full feature film, the 2012 Silver Ace Award winner from the Las Vegas Film Festival, Deference. Deference, the full movie, is for free on our YouTube channel. Then our second feature film, The Unsung, is now available for free on Tubi. Tubi is a free streaming site, just has a little bit of ads, but you can get used to them. Check us out on Tubi. All you have to do is register for Tubi, or if you're already registered, go on ahead and sign in on Tubi and just search The Unsung. The Unsung is now streaming for free on Tubi. Check us out today at churchillpictures.com or YouTube deference, Tubi The Unsung, Churchill Pictures. We create worlds. And we're back, and it is time to talk some wrestling. First up, all in the pay-per-view from London, England at Wembley Stadium with a crowd of 81,035, the highest paid attendance for a wrestling event Ever. Let the debates uh, begin. Which, hey, I've still been seeing mugs. Yeah, because everybody's fucking a bummer about stupid shit like that. But, <laughs> yeah. uh, but let's break down the show. We gave you guys the preview last week. So first up, we saw the ROH Tag Team Championships change hands in 7 minutes and 45 seconds when MJF and Adam Cole defeated Kyle Fletcher and Mark Davis of Aussie Open by pinfall. Uh, we both got this one wrong in our predictions. Uh, I actually didn't see this, um, and I was kind of surprised when I found out that they changed the titles. Um, I don't know. I think it was a little needless, but I'm also assuming it's because we're going to get a rematch for this at all in. I was going to mention, I think we did kind of predict this because we were talking about the reason for them having this match on the pre-show was for storyline purposes predominantly. And that's kind of, you know, know, we'll get into it with the main event and the repercussions for how the show ended and everything, but that had to go in with this. So, uh, you know, when you kind of think about it and see how everything played out, it, the hindsight of it does make sense. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, also, another match on the pre-show that we they got announced after we did the preview on the show was an FTW rules match for the FTW championship. And in eight minutes and 20 seconds, we saw Hook defeat Jack Perry by submission uh, to win back the title. Uh, not a big surprise. Kind of stupid that they did this to begin with, frankly, uh, by putting the belt on them. This has been kind of, like, I think they could have got a lot more traction out of this feud and they kind of just pushed it and hurried it along. 
and probably for good reason, considering something that happened backstage that we'll talk about. Uh, but yeah, Hook ended up uh, winning the FTW title back. Yeah, I, I agree with with that. I, I think it was kind of just shoehorned in, as we say, pre-show. It, it's two of their younger home homegrown talents going at it with actual storyline that has been going on for months and hook's been off TV for a while. And then you do, you know, an eight and a half minute kind of thing here. Although it wasn't bad. I mean, they did some cool shit, you know, all this stuff on the limo and and everything. And um, of course, Perry with his heel character did the RVD finger point to set up rolling thunder and goes uh, at the windshield. And he does say audibly, you could hear him. It's real glass. Cry me a river. Of course, referencing the prior CM Punk incident, and we can get into the behind the stage stuff, as you said, but uh, that all went into it. But like you said, I, I think that they kind of just jumped the gun on this by giving them the pre-show spot here. But on the other hand, too, I bet you both Hook and Perry are like, well, at least we you know got out there in front of that crowd. Absolutely. Uh, and then the and then the pay per view would start, and in 14 minutes, we saw the Real World's Championship. Be defended as CM Punk defeated Samoa Joe by pinfall. Uh, and this would obviously lead to a backstage incident between CM Punk and Jack Perry, where both were sent out of the building. Uh, and Punk continues his reputation as the most insufferable person in professional wrestling, uh, where constantly has a problem with somebody backstage. So, uh, and it, it's kind of a shame because I feel like, you know, uh, this fucks a lot more people than this, but immediately it fucks Hook, who beat. Uh, Jungle Boy, so that's overshadowed. Uh, Joe puts over Punk, and nobody's talking about it because it got overshadowed by the shit that happened backstage. Um, kind of unfortunate, but it just is what it is here with Punk. It's, I seem to think that we're going to probably be talking about this even more as the weeks go on, as there's sure to be more incidents with this idiot uh, once he's back from his, what is it, second or third suspension since they signed him a little over a year ago. Yeah, ridiculous. Yeah, where where it is, our our reference here would be Dave Meltzer from the Wrestling Observer on social media stated that both CM Punk and Jack Perry have been suspended by Tony Khan. Uh, I didn't hear the lengths or the details. I just know that he mentioned they were both uh, definitively suspended. So, like you said, we'll be unfortunately talking about that. Uh, The match wasn't bad, though. Uh, We predicted it. It's 20 years too late from their primes, but... You know, Joe showed an aggressive side that he hasn't shown in some time was pretty good. And then to make something special, Punk was was busted open pretty solid and broke out the Pepsi plunge, which, you know, he only does very sparingly now. And, and that was uh, the finish. And it was it was the right time here. Just shy of 15 minutes, as you mentioned, hey, Ed, it didn't outstay its welcome. And I, I like the spot uh, as the opener, too, for this. Yeah, I, I agree with that as well. Um, I also was laughing to myself because I assumed that they had this match on now uh, so that Punk can get out of the building before they have to bring the Elite in to have their matches later on. So, But that's clearly not the case because even if it was, Punk will still happily find someone else to apparently fight with. Well, that was kind of funny, too. I'm not blaming anybody else. I'm not blaming Tony Khan for setting it up as that. He probably wasn't thinking about it because you would assume guys, especially a guy of Punk's caliber, but anybody for that matter to be professional. Uh, but it, it was funny that they did have that past incident, Perry and Punk, and Perry wrestled right before him, you know, because the incident yep. took place supposedly what, you know, as soon as Perry came back regarding the real glass use and probably, you know, Punk caught what he said. And, you know, they're right there. You know, Punk was getting ready to go out. 
Jack Perry's coming back and uh, the unprofessionalism <laughs> yeah, kind of comes to fruition. Yeah. Uh, next, we had the six-man tag match. And in 20 minutes and 30 seconds, we saw Bullet Club Gold uh, defeat the Golden Elite by pinfall as uh, Takeshkina uh, would pin Kenny Omega. So this was a little bit surprising. Um, I don't mind that they're doing Takeshkina and, uh, and Omega. I just think, again, like which is going to be a common complaint uh, for me in this company, is I just think the booking surrounding it's kind of lackadaisical and kind of half-assed, which is a shame because I think they're going to be able to have a really, really good match. Yeah, and that's that's exactly what goes into this is because uh, the the finish was a, a V trigger to Juice Robinson, but Takashita rolls up Omega and, and uses the tights, the heel move to get the pin. So that gives him the first win over Omega. You know, after the two have kind of been going back and forth for for a while on AEW television, which you would presume sets up a big singles match. Uh, I would assume at the next pay per view right around the corner here in Chicago at All Out. Uh, so, you know, it gives so, some semblance of booking there. But, yeah, like you said, it, it could be better. Yeah, and, you know, you guys might be wondering why we're not doing a preview of, of All In. Uh, and it's because they, they're it, all they're, out. They're, <laughs> they're, yeah, all out, my bad. Uh, is because it's a week. It's not even a week away. So they're building up the card as we're doing the show. So with Dynamite yet to airs when we're recording, and all the other shows that come in between, that's where we're going to get the card fleshed out. So I'm sure we'll talk about it a little bit next week on the show. But yeah, there's not going to really be a preview for it. So uh, next up, we had the AEW World Tag Team Championships up for grabs. And FTR defeated the Young Bucks by pinfall in 21 minutes and 45 seconds. Uh, really good match here, uh, which we basically said that it would be. Um, I think it's still a little disappointing the Bucks didn't win the belts here. I think it's a good time to take them off FTR, uh, which is very weird because I think FTR is very, very good. Um, but they don't have good runs with the belts. And that's just where I feel like this is. Like, it's not necessarily their fault uh, in the matter. It's just they don't have any really memorable feuds or anything like that since they've become tag champs. And we just kind of have like a long run with them that, you know, I don't know how much it really means. So I think it would have been a good time to take the belts off them and put them back on the Young Bucks, but that didn't happen. And now I don't really know where either one of these teams kind of goes. Yeah, it's kind of crazy that, uh, you know, I think people were talking about that within professional wrestling, social media regarding Omega, talking about the elite specifically, just a bunch of them re-signing to big contracts and long-term deals and Omega's on like something like a five or six match losing streak. And, yep. and the Bucks seem to, to lose a decent amount. I mean, they are EVPs. I don't know if that goes into like where they're just like, and, oh, we'll just try to put people over and have good matches. We don't really care about winning. I don't I don't know what the the deal is. And they're not doing much with Paige either. He's just right. kind of like around. Yeah. Uh, again, we mentioned that in the preview that you have Hangman Page, Abishu, uh, Kenny Omega, all in a, a six man, and, and now the Bucks uh, surprisingly not going over here. But uh, again, li like you said, at, at the matter at hand, this was a really good match. It's what we expected. Tons of kicking out of big moves. Uh, the the Meltzer driver kept getting broken up. I mean, that was kind of the finish. They were going for it again. It got broken up again and led to a shatter machine. And, and good timing for this, you know, just over the twenty minute mark. I think's uh, where this needed to be. So uh, I'll take a, a really good match. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's what we got there. Uh, admittedly, my viewing of the next match was a little spotty because I did watch this in a, uh, with a bunch of other people. Uh, in 21 minutes and 30 seconds, the team of Eddie Kingston, Penta, and Chuck and Trent, and along with Orange Cassidy, defeated the Blackpool Combat Club uh, team of Moxley, Claudio Castagnoli, Wheeler Yuta, Mike Santana, and Ortiz by pinfall. Um, seemed like fun from what I saw. Everybody was kind of talking about it and said that it was a lot of fun. So, uh, you know, kind of what I would expect on here. Although I'm a little surprised that uh, Eddie and, and company won. That's all I would explain it in, in a nutshell was was fun. Uh, we, we again talked about it in the preview coinciding with the new DLC for the Fight Forever video game with the, the Stadium Stampede DLC. And that's what you got here, as I, I said in the preview. I call it the quote-unquote video game-esque kind of real-life match. And, and that's what this was. You know, tons of different spots, all kinds of guys involved. Uh, of course, a lot of people were talking, which shouldn't be no surprise. We kind of called that too with Moxley. But, uh, you know, a lot of people talking about when Penta put the skewers in his head, you know, that's one of those yeah. kind of hardcore spots with these skewers. And it did look pretty gross. Uh, he had a ton of them just right in the middle of his forehead, looking like a horror movie. Uh, you know, they had uh, Suze, which is Trent Beretta's mom, come down in the van. You know, they still have that kind of stuff going. And the van was full of weapons to add to the match. So, yeah, I mean, there was, there was tons of fun stuff. A lot of huge spots, you know, wild, bloody brawl, uh, what it needed to be. And the only thing was... From the traditional, if you will, I'll, I'll use that term loosely and throw air quotes on it, uh, of Stadium Stampede. One of the reasons that Stadium Stampede was even invented was the pandemic year when Tony Khan had access to, to the football stadium. So even though they were in a stadium here, the stadiums filled the capacity. It was more or less just like a false count anywhere match just with all these guys involved. You know, it wasn't really yep. a, a separate gimmick, but then, you, you know, you did have Eddie Kingston that, that was up in like the boxes and stuff. So th there was, there was definitely a lot to it and, and I had fun with it. it. It was what I expected it to be. Next up, we had the AEW four way for the women's world championship. And in eight minutes and 50 seconds, Soraya defeated Tony Storm, Hikaru Shida and Dr. Britt Baker by pinfall. Uh, this is literally what we called. We were hoping this would not happen. Uh, they went for the feel-good moment over everything. They actually paid uh, to use Queens. We will rock you for Paige to, or Soraya to come out. With her family. Um, yeah. I mean, whatever. It just, see, this is, this is exactly what I was expecting, and it's exactly what I had a problem with. Um, you do try and go for this feel-good moment, but it ultimately doesn't mean anything because Soraya is basically hardly wrestled. Um, you could have easily had her form her way into being a contender recently, but instead you just have her play the third wheel of the outcasts, which seemingly they broke up during this match. It was kind of hard to tell because, you know, Tony turned on Ruby and, you know, whatever it, it is what it is. But, uh, the bottom line is if for me, like, okay, you got the feel good moment here for Soraya, but I thought that it made no sense the way they broke up or at least had her interact with Tony Storm in the match. Uh, Britt Baker's an afterthought, and I feel really bad for Sheeta, who I think is really good, and they put the belt on her for no reason. Yeah, that's that's what kind of happens. It's it's very similar to the the WWE's women's division right now. They, you know, we kind of talked about that. They kind of did that with Asuka, you know, ironically another Japanese yep. woman, and and that's kind of the case here. It's it's kind of a messy division right now, and you know, you had everything kind of 
was a catalyst from Thunder Rosa going back some time, kind of really threw this this whole division off, and they really haven't been able to get back on the track since. And that's been some time, as you know, Hey Ed. I mean, we're talking months upon months of this division. If being not really a year. Messy. Yeah, really messy. And, and and like you said, then you kind of hot shot the belt on Sheeta. Uh, we said in the preview of going into that match that we thought uh, it, it wasn't time and that Tony Storm should have held on to it. And this really, in hindsight, makes that come true. You know, like that just was a bad decision if you just gave Sheeta the belt for this feel-good moment for Shereya in a or Shereya in a four-women match, too. So just just kind of messy. I mean, the match wasn't bad, and, and I like the fact that they kept it short, uh, unfortunately. I mean, under 10 minutes, about 8.50 I have, so – uh, that kind of worked out too because it kind of just came and went. But yeah, just it's just another glaring example that they really need to work on the women's division in AEW. Yeah, and it's seemingly just getting worse, which is kind of a shame too. So uh, next up, we had the coffin match. And in 16 minutes, we saw Darby Allen and Sting defeat Swerve Strickland and Christian Cage filling in for AR Fox, who was essentially removed from the group uh, during the previous week. Um, this match was fun. It's exactly what I thought it would be. Uh, kind of like, you know, fun moments for Sting and dude, Darby fucking got murdered in this match, man. The coffin yeah. drop where he lands directly on the closed coffin yeah. was absolutely Because he's a small brutal. dude and he dented the shit out of that and that thing was legit. And it looked like he hit his head too, yeah. like his well, head I'm just sure. violently jerked back. Yeah. Like, uh, But yeah, I mean, this one was good. It's exactly what I thought it was. It's... Like this point in the card, it's perfect timing to have like a sixteen-minute tag. Match yeah, the with timing this was good stuff. for this. Yeah, that was that was for sure the placement on the card. They were they even used a cricket bat <laughs> as a weapon in this. Yeah, that, yep. that popped me. That was funny. And you know, some of the other highlights were, uh, you know, Luchasaurus kind of being involved in the whole things with Christian, and they're doing the thing with Christian. Um, you know, how, claiming that he's basically the champion, even though Luchasaurus is the champion. So that, and they always like something. remind you of that now. Like they weren't doing it for a while, but now on TV they're like, again, we know he's not the TNT champion. That's actually Luchasaurus. Like they keep saying it. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, they're, I kind of like what they're doing some with seeds now. there. Yep. And you know, some of the other little notes I had for this one was uh, Swerve, uh, who we mentioned, has kind of been uh, underutilized and and has really been coming into his own with the new group and the heel run. And then he comes down with the two worst rappers I may have ever heard. Who, that was terrible. This, this is just a guess too, but I have a funny feeling those guys were British rappers and uh, you know, it's kind of a different genre of rap. But yeah, like I'm not a real true. big fan of it. And yeah, that's, that's just a guess though. I'm not going to act like I know for sure. And no, I don't care enough to actually look it up and find out. And so then, if you care, Google it. And then in encountering that, Sting and Darby have like this old school British style entrance, but then it, it like switches over to yeah, but then it switches over to Seek and Destroy from Metallica, which is a, a song Sting did use at times in WCW. That was yeah, that was his WCW song for the dying days, yep. uh, if you will. They got the rights. Uh, I was I was really shocked that they got the rights for that, uh, but they did yep. so. Good for them. But, yeah, this was a fun uh, match, and I'm with you. Hey, I had very good placement on the card for this to kind of switch things up. Next up, we saw Will Ospreay defeat Chris Jericho by pinfall in 14 minutes and 55 seconds. Uh, they did pretty good. Uh, they did, The match wasn't too long. It wasn't too short. Uh, I thought Ospreay was able to do what he needed to do and obviously win, which was very important here, too. Um, so as much as I kind of shit on this match going into the pay-per-view, wasn't anything offensive. It was actually pretty good. 
spade a spade. Hey, Ed, call it like you see it, even when you might be wrong. That's why you preview. But I'm with you because we, we basically mentioned it could go either way. So and we were hoping for for what happened, which was the chemistry was there and Jericho really stepped up his game. Uh, great, pleasant surprise. There was one point where Jericho did a Hinrunic Hinrata or, or maybe even just a straight up Frankensteiner. And dude, he hit it like he was 27. Yeah. I mean, his head yep. just like swoop past the canvas. I mean, he hit it as perfect as you could. A lot of good it spots. Also, dude, it also shows you how good Osprey is. Yeah. Osprey did a really good job making Jericho look good. Of course. Match yeah. Stuff you too, know, it so. leads into the, the Spanish fly and, and everything that went into that. And then Stormbreaker into the hidden blade into another Stormbreaker. So, you know, Jericho with a, a strong put over. He, it took a lot for, for Osprey to beat, beat him and, and the right man to go over, as we called. So this this was, a again, the best way I can explain that. A pleasant surprise. Perfect timing with the 15-minute runtime as well. Next up is a match that got added after we did our preview. It was a house rules, no holds barred, six-man tag match for the AEW World Trios Championship. And in 10 minutes and 50 seconds, we saw Billy Gunn and the Acclaim defeat the House of Black by pinfall to win the AEW World Trios Championship. Uh, I'm not a big fan of the House of Black, specifically Malachi Black. I think Brody King and Buddy Matthews are fine. Um, but I'm not a big fan of the gimmick and the storyline that they're yeah, doing. There's something, it, there's which something is missing. Never ending. There's like aspects that it, could be cool, you know? Yeah, they just don't follow up on it enough. Yeah, That's the like off. they'll just disappear for weeks on end, and then they'll be there for a month straight. And they don't really progress anything. Yeah, that's a good call. Uh, um, but I was really glad to see Billy Gunn and the Acclaim back and winning this match because I felt like uh, they've been kind of off with the Acclaim since they took the tag belts off them, and they kind of did that for no reason. So it's just again we've seen it happen. Like for example, with Wardlow, where they don't focus and and kind of book guys properly when the iron's hot and that's what they did with the acclaimed but the acclaim have managed to stay over still so i hope this gives them at least something interesting to do and gets them on tv pretty much every week they kind of had to change the titles here as well because you couldn't go again without with billy losing you know because they did the whole I gimmick agree. with yeah. him you know looking like he might retire leaving his boots there and you know that was that was a decent portion of the story i don't i don't mind that i agree and, and it is crazy you just got to talking out loud throw that out there hey Ed, here in late 2023 basically we're still talking about a billy gun that looks like he's in his 30s <laughs> a lot of, like, and he's in his 60s he, he's, it's ridiculous i mean i just gotta mention that that he's like a big part of this huge show and we used to watch him as teenagers in the mid 90s in a cowboy yeah. tag team match so yep worth worth mentioning with all that but yeah th this was another one that did its part for for what it was didn't overstay its welcome with you know the 10 minute or so runtime. so uh you know it was what it was and it, it was it was fun enough and in the main event, we had the AEW World Championship up for grabs. And in 29 minutes, MJF defeated Adam Cole by pinfall. Um, I really like this. I like this match a lot. It was a lot different than what I was expecting. Um, I thought they did a really good job with everything here. Um, I'm also glad that they kind of managed to keep MJF as a babyface in the situation. Um, I think that's really important moving forward. Um, I also think that we were right whenever we kind of said like this is not they're gonna, this is going to continue on um, because they're going to just basically use the storyline aspect of things to kind of you know bring everything back because they're using Roddy and and the the kingdom and stuff in this uh, this whole thing. So 
Uh, but for the first chapter, I guess, of the story, I actually really like what they did here. And I'm, and I'm very curious uh, to see where they go from here, which is more than I can say for the majority of the stuff that they're doing in the company right now. By the way, hey, Ed, that ding you just heard was a message from General Nakchora. So we'll, we'll get into that here on the oh, show. Oh, great. But, but yeah, you, you use the key word in this case, storytelling. The action in this match was great, but the storytelling was was phenomenal in my opinion you know you got the teases of 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 turning and strong not being able to get cold to go full evil and the kind of back and forth and i was thinking most of the time that one was going to turn on the other uh, i were you know shout out to our buddy dave ass that we talk wrestling with too i was telling him in, in our talking going into the pay-per-view that i was feeling like mjf was going to remain babyface and cole was going to go heel and that didn't happen like i was expecting that so that that all brought me really into this and, you know, it brings you into the near falls and what they're going to do and strong being down there. What What's going to happen? There was just a lot to this. But, yeah, I thought this was a really good match. And they lived up to the build, billing to uh, main event, the, the biggest show of all time here. So kudos to both MJF and Cole for that. Yeah, absolutely. They did a great job with that. And, uh, you know, overall, uh, the biggest show in the history of all elite wrestling, no doubt about it. It's one of the biggest wrestling shows in the history of pro wrestling, period. Um, and the biggest paid attendance for any wrestling show in the history of the sport. So uh, not too bad for them. But as we do here on the show, we do a letter grade for uh, the wrestling events. So the J, what do you got for AEW's All In? Just real quick before I give the letter grade, hey, did you catch the big announcement as well? Mm, I, I don't think so. They're back in Wembley next year for All oh, In yeah, 2024. Yeah, yeah. So. yeah, that's that's not a big announcement because it's like it well, was, I mean, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll talk about it next year, obviously. Yeah, but still, I you know, it's just uh, it's cool that they just said, you know, we're definitely doing this again. Um, yeah, so. there. Here, here, here's an idea, Tony. Maybe next year you're going to actually have to book and build up the card because you're not just going to automatically get eighty thousand people showing up. And, and that's the thing. I mean, this show was was where the atmosphere and the look that we were talking about was really going to matter. But then when the wrestling and a lot of the storytelling, albeit a lot of misses as we talked about, but a lot of it was really good. Uh, I thought that they were able to live up to the hype for this show, and therefore I am going to give this show, hey Ed, an A minus. I'm going to give the show a B. Um, I thought they did a good job with it, but there was, you know, I still think the the women's match being like a stupid afterthought where they had to change the title was, was really stupid. Um, and I also thought, too, that like trying to shoehorn some stuff on the show was also a bad idea. But overall, pretty good wrestling show with some really good wrestling action and some great matches. So and obviously a really, really big day uh, for professional wrestling in general, not just AEW. So kudos to them. Uh, for an event that seemed seemed to go on without a hitch, uh, unless you're talking about shit that happened backstage. <laughs> yes, um, but it is what it is. He was the opener, so he needed to be talked about. Yeah, exactly. Uh, in more, more than one way. Um, but now we move over to WWE Payback. Uh, it's actually happening on Saturday, September 2nd, live from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania at the PPG Paints Arena. Oddly enough, we are not going. Um, but this is the sixth batch card that they have lined up as of right now. Um, first up, the J, we have a Steel City street fight for the undisputed WWE Tag Team Championships as Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn are de going to defend against the team of Finn Balor and Damian Priest, the Judgment Day. Um, this is kind of built on the fly. Um, there's seemingly some back and forth storyline stuff with Finn and Damian Priest the last month or so. 
And I assuming that's pretty much why this is being set up here as well. Um, but I, I'll obviously explain more uh, whenever we give our predictions. But I think that this is a match made for storyline purposes, essentially. That that was my take. You know, if you watch Raw, which I've been watching pretty uh, regularly, the next day after I tape it on on Tuesdays in my office, it is all Judgment Day and a lot of Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn all over the shows pretty consistently. And, you know, so obviously these guys would be together. Like you said, storyline-wise, they got everything going on with with Priest and Balor and just not getting along, but still, you know, sticking with the Judgment Day. Then, of course, the involvement of Balor's friend, J.D. McDonough. So I think he's going to be involved in this, of course, uh, which will lead into some stuff, maybe cost Judgment Day the loss. Uh, like you said, we can get into the predictions, but you're exactly right, Hey Ed. I was right with you there. I think this is a, a big-time WWE storyline kind of match. Next up, we have a match that's probably one of the more build-up matches on the entire card, but we are getting uh, LA Knight going one-on-one with The Miz. Um, I think this is pretty much just to build up LA Knight. It's been a pretty interesting feud just for TV because both of these guys can cut promos. Um, I don't expect it to be a world beater match, but I do expect it to be something uh, that's at least good. But I'm not expecting a long match or anything like that out of these two. No, this this will definitely be that classic WWE style match. You know, and, and yes. you're, you're exactly right. I mean, we know it's pretty obvious to us. Uh, this, this is Knight with his shot to work with the Miz, uh, established long-term veteran talent, uh, you know, to kind of see where, where he can go after this and keep building him up. That's exactly what this is for. Absolutely. Uh, we also have the WWE United States championship up for grabs as Rey Mysterio defends against Austin theory. Uh, these two have been going at it for a while too. Uh, Mysterio actually defeated theory for the United States, uh, championship, so I kind of look at this as another way of like, you know, getting your win back kind of thing for theory. Yeah, I like I like the kind of storyline to this. It's not the greatest, but, you know, it's like theory earns the rematch against Mysterio after beating L.A. Knight. Because, of course, like we're talking about, that's what's kind of fueling that uh, L.A. Knight Miz feud. And then Mysterio beats him to capture the title on the earlier episode of SmackDown. So it's kind of like somewhat built up with just how they put them together the last few months. So that makes it more interesting than like we're, we're talking about with the AEW show and some of the um, shoehorn things, you know, like, like yep. at least there's some meat to the bone and there's some backstory to tell here. And then of course you got the uh, possible involvement of the LWO, which they still yep. have going on. So we'll see what plays out in this one. Uh, the women's world championship is up for grabs as Rhea Ripley is going to defend against Raquel Rodriguez. Uh, who they've been trying to work this feud for like the last month or so. So they're finally going to do it at payback. Yeah, I mean, it, it should be all right. I, I do like Raquel Rodriguez. She definitely has a, a lot of work to do. She's very green. She's kind of like the WWE equivalent of Jade Cargill in AEW. Like they have the the look and, and, and the size and everything, but they have to fine tune the in-ring work and the, the mic skills and well, everything dude- we know about. I think she was really good in NXT. Yeah, that happens to a lot of people too. Since coming up to too. the main roster, it, it's kind of like, and it's not just the booking either. I mean, it's her work as well. Yeah, and then the injury didn't skin. help. But but like you said, it, it's kind of rings true with what I was saying regarding the the U.S. title match with Mysterio and Theory is that at least there is some sort of storytelling here. They do have some sort of history. They did use the real life injury to kind of prolong the 
the storyline of Ripley putting her out. So, you know, at least you have that going for it. But like you said, I'm not expecting anything crazy here. Next up is the World Heavyweight Championship match as Seth freaking Rollins defends against Shinsuke Nakamura. Um, I think it's easy to say that this is probably going to be the best match of the card. Yeah, I, I one of the reasons that I was disappointed that I wasn't able to go, uh, you know, it's just a timing money thing uh, for me personally. Uh, th with this pay-per-view being in Pittsburgh, that, that we'll be missing it. It is what it is, but I would have really liked to have seen this match in person, uh, especially for my love of Shinsuke and know that, knowing that he's a bit older now. But I definitely like what they've been doing here. We, we were joking. It's like it only took the WWE creative seven years to realize that it might be effective for Shinsuke just to talk in Japanese and have subtitles because I really have been liking the vignettes and what they've been doing in, in the heel Shinsuke. But, yeah, like you said, I mean, that when you have the backdrop – of really good storytelling, a kind of new version of Shinsuke with the heel run. Seth's on fire right now, and then we know what these two could do in, in the ring. I'm hoping this is an all-time classic. Yeah, I hope so as well. And also, and the reason why I brought it up last is because I actually think this is going to be the main event. Uh, it's a steel cage matchup between Becky Lynch and Trish Stratus. They've been building this up for months. This was actually supposed to be a match on SummerSlam that got bumped off the card for whatever reason. And they're finally doing it here at uh, Payback. So, um, I, you know, it, I think that they can do a good job with this one. I don't expect this to be jaw-dropping or anything that amazing, though, even though Becky's good. And Trish is really good, especially for being out of the sport for as long as she has been. But it's just names. It is what it is. Yeah, I mean, it should be fine. I'm hoping the, the, the women bring it, which I'm sure they will. What, what knocks? All right, well, we're finishing the review. There's there's some going-ons here, hey, uh, uh, oh god already at the studios but uh but yeah i mean steel cage match with these two at least is something fresh zoe stark being involved you know somehow like that's the whole point is to prevent outside interference but we know how that goes with booking cage matches in professional wrestling uh with zoe stark being a part of it so i feel like she's gonna have involvement but yeah like you said i, I think that they could do something pretty cool here if, if everything is aligned properly all right, so it's time for some predictions. The J first up is the Steel City Street Fight for the Undisputed WWE Tag Team Championships, where Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn defend against Finn Balor and Damian Priest. Who do you like in this one? I say Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn go over Ooh. to keep the Judgment Day stuff, you know, going on storyline wise moving forward. Yeah, that's what I agree with too. There's going to be some sort of dissension uh, and and probably uh, backfiring interference uh, on the part of Judgment Day exactly. that leads to Owens and Sammy keeping the belts. Uh, next up, we have LA Knight versus The Miz. I think it's pretty simple here. This will be a good match, but LA Knight's definitely going to go over. That's the whole purpose of this. We have the United States Championship matchup as Rey Mysterio defends against Austin Theory. Who do you like here, the J? Um, I know you mentioned kind of when we were talking about it, it's kind of right in the ship with Austin Theory's character, but... Then again, I, I don't know about the hot shot in the belt that quick. I'm going to pick Mysterio in this one. Yeah, I think Austin Theory is going to end up taking the uh, U.S. belt back uh, at this point. They tend to do that with Ray, too, where he gets short yeah, he's like title the place, Yeah, the placeholder champion. But we'll see how that goes. But that's how I see that one shaking out. We have the Women's World Championship up for grabs as Rhea Ripley defends against Raquel Rodriguez. And I don't think there's any way Rhea loses the belt. No, no. This is going to be a, one of those matches that Raquel gets the experience of being in a high-profile pay-per-view match for a title. But she's way too green, and, and Ripley's way too hot right now for her to even come close. 
Next, we have the World Heavyweight Championship as Seth freaking Rollins defends against Shinsuke Nakamura. Who do you think wins this one, the Jay? Seth Rollins went in, and like I said, I'm just hoping that the chemistry's there, the time's there, everything we, we wish for, and that this is a, a hell of a match. Yeah, I would agree with that, too. I think Rollins wins that one. And in the main event, we have the steel cage match between Becky and Trish. Uh, I think this is Becky's match to win. They've been kind of setting it up for her to get the W, and this will probably be the end of their feud and maybe the end of Trish Stratus wrestling as well. For sure. Anything can happen, but everything you said, hey, Ed, I, I concur. I think this is all Becky. All right. So that's our breakdowns there of All Out and a preview of WWE Payback, which we're going to take a look at next week on the show. But we are hey, up here. another team. Here they go. All right, guys. Uh, it's time for the season finale. Thank God, because the Jays in really bad. Oh, shit. Uh, guys, uh, we got to go. Uh, when we come back, we're going to take a look at 2014's The Go-Go Boys. Uh, so stay tuned for that. Uh, we're still alive here on the What's Real Podcast. It's IWC, the International Wrestling Cartels, Base Brawl 2023. Live September 9th. 7 p.m. at the Wild Things Park at 1 Washington Federal Way in Washington, Pennsylvania. Tickets are on sale now at IWCWrestling.com. It's time for Thursday Night Pride. And we're back, and it is time for the season finale, so to speak, of Thursday Night Prime, and today we're going to take a look at The Go-Go Boys, The Inside Story of Canon Films. It's a 2014 documentary directed by Hilia Medallia, uh, Cousins Manaheim Golan, and Yoram Globus relive the creation, rise, and fall of their independent film company, Canon Films. This documentary recounts their many successes and discusses their eventual downfall. Um, this is one that I've wanted to see for quite some time. Around the same time, uh, this one would actually come out first, but then there would be another one to come out. It's called Electric Boogaloo, uh, The Wild Untold Story of Canon Films, uh, which unfortunately is significantly better uh, to me than this one. Um, this is like a nice companion piece to that. But uh, besides that, I was kind of disappointed with this one, man. Um, it, it's not that it didn't have anything interesting in it or anything like that, but I thought that basically you're, you're having people and talking heads in this one that aren't being cooperative. Like they don't really want to talk about certain things and they're not really like, it's more of the backstory on the guys. Um, but because of all of the stuff that they've done, um, in my opinion, 90 minutes didn't really cover everything and if it did it kind of let's go move it along hurry up kind of thing like they didn't really have the opportunity to fucking hang loose on a lot of this stuff for a while like i wanted them to and kind of do a deep dive on it um to me this is a documentary like it it probably the story would probably be better told in a book than it would be in a documentary because of all the different people involved and everything else um i thought they did a pretty good job in this one with the talking heads that we saw because, uh, you know, we did see Jean-Claude Van Damme in this one. Michael Dudikoff was in this. John Voight, Billy Drago. Uh, Andre uh, Konchalovsky shows up in this one. Um, but, you know, and then, of course, they have Golan and Globus in this, which is 
the main reason to watch it is kind of like to hear the story told from the two guys. Um, but frankly, as far as a documentary goes, I thought Electric Boogaloo was much better. It was much better produced. It looked better. It was just a sleeker, better documentary than this one was. Sorry, hey, I, we had you on here. I was listening to you to be able to retort. I was getting my uh, my ribs taped up here. I did spear a ninja pretty good. Goldberg would have been prouder, maybe even prouder, that, that bull from GRG yeah, last week. Bull, yeah, the bull would definitely but, be proud. Uh, yeah, still very sore, and I'm actually happy as tough as it is to say that we're going on a hiatus with GRG because your boy is is pretty goddamn sore, dude. You know what rib injuries are. Curves to breathe. Yeah, I made it through the season, the, this, this season pretty good. Yeah, actually, we did. Which Last week was fun. It was a celebration of boobs, but then, you know, Nux uh, caught them coming up, and that's what he was hitting us up about. And We got the jump on them. Everybody's okay. Yeah, see, and see that uh, Nux, if you're listening, this is exactly what I was talking about last week. He kept hitting us up the same way last week, but it was just because he was really excited about titties. Yeah, exactly. So I just so assumed that different. he was still doing it like this week, but no, he was trying to warn us. So thanks. This is why I said stop crying wolf, man. Yeah, and I wish I could have a, a counter take on this uh, with the Go-Go Boys, but I felt the same way. Uh, that was one of like my first you know, roundabout feelings on this with my notes was that it was kind of disappointing overall. Uh, I'm, I'm with you on a lot of the points you made as far as going deeper. A little too dry. Yeah. I mean, the, the director Medallia does a very good job of you know, talking about the men's Israeli roots and the earlier a lot of good footage. Yeah, like early they nature of the relationship. Really footage. footage was really good. You know, um I'll always like to see the things of you know, Golan got his start in professional films working with Roger Corman, our man. Always like to give a shout out there. Specifically, that was on the young racers, and I'm sure that's kind of what gave him inspiration and experience and taught him a whole hell of a lot about low budget filmmaking. And as usual, just from a personal perspective, I have to say, hey, Ed, one thing about this and is typical for me, you know, your boy, but it does inspire me. And I do watch this more as an educational piece in a lot of ways than as an entertainment piece for, for myself with being also involved in independent filmmaking. And that kind of got me going with some of my own notes uh, with stuff that we're working on. So I did get inspired by it, as I always do. Uh, but as far as the actual film goes, uh, I'm with you. It, it, it left a lot to be desired from breaking. But nonetheless, it's not like it was a complete waste of time on the other hand either. I, I did like the talking heads. One, one guy you didn't mention that I like to bust your balls with that popped in here was your man, Eli Roth. Canon was my favorite studio as a kid. They really took over American pop, pop culture, Roth stated. Yeah, the biggest problem that I have with this documentary overall, though, is like when you watch Electric Boogaloo, it celebrates the canon movies, but it also understands that like a lot of the stuff was crap or it was haphazardly made or some of it was just frankly lucky. And they also really covered like the downfall of canon films, too. Like whenever they, you know, they they, they had some major flubs, basically, with Masters of the Universe being one of them. Um in this one, though, it feels like like there's that one part where like the one the interview tries to talk to him about like some of their failures, and he just doesn't want to talk about it at all. He's yeah. like, "That's negative," and it's like, "Well, that's part of the company that went bankrupt. Like, it's part of the whole story." 
So the fact that like they're still they still have that attitude this many years later after the fact kind of is a bummer. And it just, you know, the fact that like that, like this one tried to make them look like they were geniuses that never made any mistakes. And when it's like we know that they they screwed some stuff up. So that to me kind of skewers the story that they're telling which automatically makes this one not as good because it's like they're not out to tell the real story. It feels like they're kind of out to put a rebuttal out against Electric Boogaloo. And, dude, I was looking this up because I, I was surprised that they came out in the same I year. was going to mention that in 2014, both of them. But did you do you know the story? No, were they, they were trying – what, they, they were so probably coming out with the Electric Boogaloo they, and these goofs heard about saw it. Elect- they saw Electric Boogaloo okay. and they quickly made this and put it out first. Figures that make sense with them. So yeah, and it's dude, it's just kind of a bummer because, like I said, I, I guess I just wanted this to be, at least be on board with Electric Boogaloo, and I thought maybe we'd get more of the story because of Golan and Galbus, uh, like their involvement in this. But it just really wasn't the case, so it ended up being pretty disappointing because of that. Yeah, some some of the little tidbits I, I took out of it. Uh, there was a part, you know, being such a Sylvester Stallone fan, where they were talking about them with working with Sylvester Stallone, and they reached out to his agent, and he's saying, "Well, you know, Stallone at that time was getting six million dollars per movie, which was, you know, as we always say, nineteen eighties money, six million, a lot of money, top top tier Hollywood." And he's like, "Yeah, I understand that." And he said, well, then why are you even calling me thinking he was going to try to undercut him? And he's like, because I, I plan on paying him 10 million. And, you know, that was a record at the time. And, and that was, of course, for over the top, the arm wrestling movie, which is complete schlock and cheese. But that's one of those, as we discuss on the show, we don't really have a definition for guilty pleasure here. But, you know, for lack of a better term, a kind of guilty pleasure film uh, for my for me, of course, being a Stallone fan. And then they talk about Superman four. They actually got the rights to freaking Superman, which was a nightmare. And that that was that was them. pretty much the the catalyst for them really starting to flounder because it was just embarrassingly underproduced, did terrible, and I forget whether it was Golan or Globus who said in the interview that they really should have like they were they were too spread, you know they're they're making too many they movies. were putting out too much stuff they can't once, they can't yeah. put enough time and effort into Superman four, but meanwhile. It's like if you you nail a Superman movie, then you're talking, you know, a huge mass media appeal kind of situation as opposed to that being considered a complete well, flub. Did, did you ever hear the story about Superman 4 and what happened? I mean, some of it. So basically they wanted to, they were, you know, after uh, part three came out, that's when they got the rights to it. And they didn't know if they'd be able to get Christopher Reeve or not, but they met with him. And basically they offered to like, he was trying to get some other movie off the ground for years and they offered to make it for him. Like it's like, we'll, we'll produce this if you'll do Superman. So he said, yes. Well, they made that movie first and there was a, they were like, there was a discrepancy uh, with the budget where he needed like another million and a half to finish the movie and they didn't want to give it to him. And he flat out said to them, he was like, you mean to tell me you can't give me an extra million and a half for this, but you're, you're going to come up with $32 million, which was the supposed budget for Superman 4. And they were like, uh, yeah. So uh, then they made Superman 4. And I guess uh, whenever Reeve first came in, like the first day, uh, and I don't know exactly how he figured this out, but it was part of the story. 
where he found out that the budget had been slashed from 32 million down to 17 million. And when you watch Superman 4, it is kind of a low budget mess. Like you can tell that there's budget issues with it. So I, I thought that was kind of an interesting thing yeah, to come very. out of all this. But dude, but here's the bad part. I didn't learn any of that from the fucking go-go boys. I had to look all this shit up myself because this is stuff that they just blatantly did not cover in the documentary. Yeah, yeah, and that is that's the most glaring thing is and that makes sense because you you enlightened myself as well with the fact that they saw the Electric Boogaloo documentary and wanted to counter it. So, of course, it's just like I, I was saying when you told me that my initial reaction is like figures these two and, and, and then they actually pull it off, you know, with getting it out before the other documentary. So uh, that that really makes sense on why we wouldn't like this as much and, and what it was missing. Uh, you know, and, and the 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 kind of payoff, if you will, too, at the end wasn't great either. They somewhat build up their what they described as a divorce, because, you know, for those that don't know that are listening, uh, Canon Films Company stock was once worth at a high forty five dollars a share and would end up sinking all the way to four four dollars and fifty cents a share. So basically by 1989, it was all over and they got what they called a divorce because, I mean, they're first cousins on top of everything else. Yep. And they went their separate ways with Golan um, going off to Israel to, to do his own company and Globus uh, you know, hooking up with the notorious Giancarlo Peretti in the takeover of MGM and then all the fallout from that, which ends up sending Golan back to Israel as well. They all end up back in, in Israel and they build up their whole breakup and everything. So you think they might be able to do some semblance of a cool kind of climax to bookend the documentary, even as like a storytelling aesthetic. And meanwhile, like they just have Golan come up to Globus when he's in his interview and they just kind of banter. It's like, yeah, I'm like, it's oh, really okay. he's like, for once in a life, read a script. And dude, you know, it just reminds me too, because uh, I know we bought, we both watched this, uh, the Blu-ray of this on MVD, uh, uh, who released bare it. Bones. Bare Bones, very, very disappointing release there. Just, I mean, I know we don't really do releases on here and talk about, you know, what's on the discs and stuff like that, but I really did expect more than just the documentary on here. And there was and not, not a commentary, not anything. So... Uh, pretty disappointing overall. And, uh, you know, the best I could say for anybody out there that wants to see this is probably try and wait until it's on something like Tubi or something else where you can check it out for free. I wouldn't recommend even buying the Blu-ray because it's there's nothing really on it. Right. So yeah, good call. unless you're unless you're an absolute diehard uh, fan of Canon films and you need this in your collection. There's really no point in buying it because it's kind of a one and done documentary where meanwhile, electric boogaloo i can watch all the time i thought that was fucking fantastic as you said and i we always shout out a, a reference if we have it i pulled up a, a hollywood reporter article and they mentioned just basically what you were alluding to hey ed with electric boogaloo's documentary this would be a good double bill to kind of get two yeah. different takes at least yep. you know watching them together and and you said that at the beginning of this breakdown here on what's real that it's more or less a companion piece to that. So uh, I think we're both on the same page and that's a good breakdown of this. Absolutely. So uh, as we do here on the show, the Jade, give us a tagline for the Go-Go Boys, the inside story of Canon Films. So I don't have one. Uh, the only one on IMDb even, which typically will throw like a, a random thing up, if nothing else. Uh, but yeah, just this kind of the inside story of Canon Films. So I don't know if you have any. Yeah. 
Yeah, I found one. It's they made movies, talked a great game, and put showmanship back into show business. The Go Go Boys. There we go. Um, and and as we do here on the show, we do a five star rating scale. I'm going to give the Go Go Boys two and a half stars. All right, yeah, I'm throwing two two and a half um, right with you there, and I'm heading down to the infirmary. I got to get repatched yet, so oh, all right. Yeah, nope. No, it's all good, man. I'll take care of it from here. So uh, it's perfect timing anyway with the Jay going out of the infirmary. We're going to take another quick commercial break. And whenever we come back, we're going to wrap up the show. And if, and if the Jay is all right, we're going to talk some goofs too. So stay tuned. We'll be back right after this right here on the What's Real Podcast. This is it from the What's Real Podcast for Height Apparel, your one-stop shop for fashion retail. For one-of-a-kind shopping experience, stop by Height Apparel. Founded by Eric Walker, our business brand is based around people who are of average height, 5'10 and under. We will have the season's greatest fashion picks. Whether you're on the lookout for men's clothing or accessories, stop by and browse our latest collection. That's Height Apparel, H-Y-G-H-T, apparel.com. Again, that's HeightApparel.com. Hey, everybody, this is Herman James for the What's Real Podcast, and I'm here to just let you know to welcome you to Goofs Are Goofs. And we're back, and it's that time once again. So, the J, what do we got this week on the Goof Front? We'll take in the scene. Hey, Ed, as we have to. It's a beautiful, towards the end of summer, August day, here in the world of What's Real, our last podcast adventure in August of 23. Hey, Ed, when we, our next herd we made it. after this episode, it will be September heading into the fall. But yeah, that's looking like the Serengeti here as always. All our beautiful animals, the animal kingdom setting the scene for the lagoon and ever flowing waterfall of goose. Welcome to GRG 178. First up, this was a one from a, a few weeks ago. Hey, Ed, that we were both talking about how we were shocked that we hadn't stumbled on it and I, I forgot to bring it up. So that's one of the first things I want to throw up here. Ladies and gentlemen, introducing wrestle ball, a sport that combines basketball, wrestling, and rugby all in one. Oh yeah. You remember I've seen this. <laughs> yeah. You said yeah. it to me. Like, how do we not know about this? And for those yeah. that don't know, look up wrestle ball online. It's a full contact sport where mugs just get annihilated. I mean, I'm talking real life German suplexes, slams. Uh, it's it's great. The only reason I don't How? think it's ever going to hit is because it's way too fucking dangerous. But yeah, I was going to say head injuries number one, but like, see, I like I'd probably rather watch this in the fucking Super Bowl. Yeah, I mean, there's there there are mats, and it's basically you know a game of basketball, uh, like high contact basketball, but. It's still brutal. <laughs> you just made that up. It's a game of high contact basketball. <laughs> yeah. Like, like I feel like you're trying to pitch me at ESPN. Like, no, you guys should really air this. It's like, it's like you know, fucking high physicality style basketball. You know what I mean? Like, Intense. you ever watch? It's like you, you ever watch basketball and just want to want to see players punch each other in the face and suplex them. Because that's what I came up with when I invented this. Yeah. Who doesn't want to see German suplexes in their b-ball? It's true. I just sent you this one. Hey, uh, uh, this is at Crazy Clips only. It's titled, Dude Jumps in an Oil Pit and Finds Out. So, yeah, like, like I... Huh. Yeah, I would fast forward it a bit. But he uh, he ends up looking like a Marvel supervillain. And he can't get yeah, the oil I'm, off. And he just starts crying. I, it's ripping dude. his skin. 
Yeah, I was confused because I'm like, well, what was the fucking intended outcome? Like jumping in oil will do that. I mean, very full. Did he not realize it was oil? And because I'm pretty sure from just looking at it, you wouldn't be like, yeah, that's water. Yeah, it stated that a Russian lad dives into a pool of motor oil trying to go viral. The bizarre footage shows the bloke lining up at the edge of an enormous deep square pool filled with vehicle oil barking in Russian at his giggling friends filming him. He pops back up spitting and flailing before climbing out of the pool while his friends break down into hysterics. Thankfully, they're on hand with a pressurized jet spray to attempt to blast him clean. Unfortunately, the oil won't come off and his, his skin has to be removed. And I, I love the fact that like the way that they were going to fix this is by pressure washing him like that doesn't hurt like a motherfucker. Yeah, the, the first person said, did he live? And German friend <laughs> said, yes, he went on to become a very famous car salesman. He went on to become an oil slick. Yeah. So, Jesus. Um, you know, no, no one our luck if, if we did this. Our friend Dinu that we referenced would light a cigarette. <laughs> You're like, what? I didn't know fucking oil was flammable. Well, he has his hat on that like covered his ears at least. So even though this Who, motor Dino oil went to his other orifices. Oh, uh, n- never mind the guy. I thought you were talking about Dino. I was like, he has a special hat. <laughs> yeah. But, but no, the, the dude who's Russian. a Caucasian Russian, when he pulls the hat off, the, the other thing that's going to come, <laughs> they're going to blame him for blackface. I like how you said he's a Caucasian Russian because you you immediately thought if you said white Russian, people thought you were talking about the drink. Exactly. White Russian. Like you're talking about cocktails. It's like, yeah, so this white Russian jumped into oil and it's like, wait a minute, an alcoholic beverage jumped into oil? Like, no, I meant like a... <laughs> A Caucasian Russian. It's like, oh, never mind. now I get it. Yeah. I sent you this one. How spending that first round pick on Trey Lance and Dynasty feels right about now. And this kid is at a, a park and he thinks the one portion is like the trampoline area so that he could dunk a basketball, but it's a real basketball court. So Dude, his the- knees buckle and he just falls. <laughs> he thought it was a trampoline. <laughs> Dude, my favorite is like when he he jumps like all fancy free and footloose with his hands in the air and then he like completely dies. Like oh, that's dude, that's amazing. What an idiot. Yeah, his knees. He thought it just says he thought it was a trampoline. Yeah. Like, and as like, as we said, I, um, I think it was last week the cameraman's just like snickering. It's like the cameraman knows. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's like this idiot. He's like, oh, wait, if I don't say anything, this dude actually thinks it's a it's, fucking It's like uh, B.D. Wong from Dumb and Dumber when Jim Carrey is like, don't worry, I'm a, I'm a freaking limousine driver, and he knows the plane's not there on the tarmac. <laughs> he just, yeah. He just smirks and goes and watches them just flip out of it. Oh, fucking idiots, man. But that's why we do Goose or Goose. Uh, this next one is is a popular thing here on the segment. Hey, Ed, with AI and robots that we talk about, we try to be the oh, scientific great. geniuses that we are and warn people. As an Austin-based robotic startup, Apertronic, its latest humanoid robot is Apollo. It's being built to do the jobs that humans don't want to do and to one day build settlements on the moon and Mars. So what are you thinking about this, Hey, Ed? Yeah, I'm thinking that's going to work. Oh, it's so they could do the jobs that we, we don't want to do. And then real quickly, they're 
taking over your job because so no one wants to pay you to do it anymore. They'd rather just buy a robot. Yeah, and it's it's like this one comment is, Apollo is a significant development in the field of robotics. It is one of the most advanced humanoid robots ever created and has the potential to revolutionize the way we work and live. I am excited to see how Apollo develops in the years to come. It was actually Apollo that tweeted that. Yeah, wait the, until the they plot wait till the, wait till the robots realize they're doing all the shit we don't want to do. Yep. <laughs> Talk about Skynet, man. We we've warned you. People are going to go back to the What's Real podcast and be like, "These motherfuckers, that, us and our boy James Cameron, trying to tell your asses." Yeah, yeah. Hope you guys listen. I mean, you won't, but. This is another uh, c- consistent thing here on the GRG segment. Hey, Ed, as a family sues Las Vegas hotel after they allegedly found a live bat in the room, they call it emotionally right. distressing. Now, let's go back to previous episodes of the What's Real podcast, Jay. How would you stop a bat from flying in your room? Hey, Ed has taught us all. It's a simple fix. It's called a tennis racket. Yep. There you go. So if you just carry your tennis racket with you, bats will never fuck with you ever. Yeah, and the, I guess the problem was they had to get rabies treatments. Yeah, they got that bat. Would, that would make sense. So I wonder if CM Punk knows how to take out a bat. Hey, you. Nah, eh, probably not. He would just bitch at it. Yeah, stupid fucking uh, bat. I, t- I told you to leave. I'm not putting you over, bat. It's just like. Meh. Yeah, <laughs> it's like Tony fire the bat, and we're gonna end with story time. Hey Ed, I didn't know if uh, this is one you caught because it's a pretty famous story about Cheddar Man. Do you know about Cheddar Man? That sounds super familiar. It's a nine thousand year old skeleton that was discovered inside a cave in Cheddar, England. So that's why he was affectionately dubbed Cheddar Man. Uh, oh, I thought it's because he was made of cheese. <laughs> yeah, I'm hungry as hell. Fucking me too. Get me hungry. DNA testing confirmed that a living relative lived approximately half a mile away, tracing their lineage back nearly 300 generations. Hey, Ed. So this goes back to 1903 while conducting excavations in Cheddar Gorge, its Somerset area of the UK. Researchers stumbled upon a remarkable find, the skeletal remains of a homo sapien who had lived around 9,000 years ago. He was ranked among the oldest modern humans ever found in Britain. It occurred serendipitously during a drainage renovation within the tourist attraction of Goff's Cave. So they found out that Cheddar Man thrived during the Mesolithic period. 9,000 years ago was a hunter-gatherer who passed away in his 20s and was 5 feet 5, this fuck. So they were able to use cutting-edge technology to enable researchers to reconstruct Cheddar Man's facial features, determining both his skin and eye color. Many women that they showed video of said that they would openly have sex with them. Of course they did. And there was genetic material extracted from one of Cheddar Man's molars. It allowed scientists to identify Adrian Target, a retired (laughs) history teacher, as a relative. Okay, so see if you could fill in the blanks here. So say they're going to make a movie about Cheddar Man, right? And and let's say that the actor to play him would be uh hmm Terrence Howard. What would the movie be called? Uh Ice Cream Cheddar Man? No. <laughs> it's good. 
It's it's going over your head, the J. <laughs> what is it? Cheddar Maine. Oh, good call. <laughs> Cheddar Maine. <laughs> and, and that's witching hour. I was thinking of Clint Howard. <laughs> Not Terrence Howard. <laughs> Clint Howard. That's why I said Holy ice cream Cheddar <laughs> Man. <laughs> so if it's uh, if it's Terrence uh, Howard, it's Cheddar Maine. And if it's yes. Clint Howard, it's ice cream Cheddar Maine. <laughs> oh, and if it's us doing the show right now, we gotta go. Yes, if we gotta wrap this the fuck. <laughs> and that's Dude, what we're doing, Christ. as I say to my Brutus from another Mutus. Between wrestle ball being the sport of the future, Russian Caucasians jumping in oil pits, Trey Lance blowing out his knees, robots taking over the world, use a tennis racket to get rid of bats, peeps, and Cheddar Mane goofs are goofs. So that's about it for us this week here on the show. If you're listening on iTunes, give us a five-star review. You can listen every week on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Google Podcasts, and ChurchillPictures.com. If you have something you'd like to add to the show, you can send us an email. You probably won't, though, at whatsrealpod at gmail.com. Uh, shout out to our producer, Cam, for all the hard work he puts in the show, because as we know here on the program, nobody beats the Wiz, the J. Clang Clang. We are the podcasting tag team champions, uh, the champions of the universe. It's the witching hour. Fuck off. But before we get out of here, I hear the J revving it up. So the J, fuck off away. Revving it up. Yeah, Uh-oh, bat hit. Oh, tennis racked the bat like I'm Cheddar Man. <laughs> I had no idea what was going on. <laughs> yeah, I killed a bat. Good good advice, Hayat. I really appreciate it. What we learned. No problem. Doing the double question mark. But the usual shout-outs. Love the show. To our producer, the man behind the scenes, the producer amongst producers, the wizard behind the boards himself. Thanks for that constant, consistent weekly. 16k sound cam we appreciate you to my bro ham hey y'all another great fun adventure love being on the journey with you man if you're hearing my voice right now much love to you spread the word help us out what's real podcast faux life and as always you'll hear the j next week so that's it for us this week here on episode 178 easy for me to say uh don't forget to join us next week for episode 179 and beyond so thank you for listening stay safe Stay healthy, stay hard, and we'll see you here next week on the What's Real Podcast. What's real? What's real?